District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We're rejoined by Stephen Gutowski of The Reload to talk about several important updates. We're going to largely focus on the aftermath of the Virginia gubernatorial election and what our forecast looks like for gun legislation going into 2022 with a newly rearranged General Assembly, especially the House of Delegates and State Senate, which actually may be very interesting and in play. And then we're also going to talk about the pending Supreme Court case and the oral arguments that were recently heard for NYSRPA versus Bruin, which is the case that could potentially overturn may issue gun restrictions, gun laws that make it harder for people to conceal carry outside the home and what that would entail. So Stephen, thank you again for coming on, given your very busy schedule and all the reporting work you've been doing. It's good to catch up to. Yeah, it's great to be here. Could we, let's begin with Virginia, which is our adopted state of residence. And I think a lot of people were really shocked by the results. I wasn't really so shocked because of just some of the trends I was following and just kind of the attitudes I'd seen in Northern Virginia and elsewhere across the state. But I want to pick your brain and see if the gun vote was largely at play. I think because of Dominion scandal, which you had written up greatly about and in great detail, we really didn't see a push from Republicans who are now the the victors in this election pushing gun rights one way or another. I think all three of them, the new governor, the LG and the AG will stand for Second Amendment rights for the most part. I haven't seen any indication that they would waver. But did the gun vote play any role in Tuesday's elections, you think? Yeah, absolutely. I do think so, because for one you had a late surge of attention towards the gun issue in Virginia. First, you had these deceptive ads that were being played uh, that attacked Youngkin for not seeking the endorsement of the NRA or VCDL, but it turned out were run by a pack that was associated with really a liberal consulting firm. And then later we found out that Dominion Energy, the, the state's largest power company mm-hmm. was actually the one who funded, as you mentioned, the, these ads. So, and interestingly, of course, they were run in red areas of the state by this liberal group, uh, which in sort of implies that their goal was to suppress the vote of, of gun owners in these more red areas of the state. And this backfired terribly for them. Uh, it, it became a huge issue in the closing weeks of this race where it was something that I think dragged down McAuliffe uh, and boosted Republic, uh, sorry, gun owner turnout in support of Youngkin and the other Republicans, because you're right. There, there hadn't really been a lot of focus on the issue throughout much of the race. They were focused more on things like uh, school issues uh, and, you know, taxes, yeah, taxes, but also McAuliffe tried to focus on Youngkin's connections with Trump, which didn't uh, really resonate that well, mm-hmm. apparently. And so you didn't have guns at the forefront of the race, but it did become much more relevant towards the end of the race. And you also had a video that I was able to unearth from 2019 of of McAuliffe himself talking about how gun shows are the worst thing we have. And how he made this deal where in 2016 he was able to get a bill through to allow voluntary 
background checks on private sales at gun shows, but he discussed how he was hoping that would secretly create liability for anyone selling a gun that didn't use the voluntary system. So it came out, you know, that he, he had made these fairly shocking remarks at um, a speech that he gave in 2019. And so that, that also played a role. I will say that uh, as well, Youngkin's campaign didn't run on the issue, but they didn't stay silent on it either. Uh, they often were giving public comment, including to the reload mm-hmm. about his positions. Like they came out and specifically said that he's against an assault weapons ban, whereas Terry McAuliffe was for an assault weapons ban. In fact, he was for the earlier proposals from a couple of years ago of outright confiscation of, you know, AR 15s and other firearms. So they did create a pretty stark contrast, even though Youngkin didn't want to be apparently associated with the NRA or VCDL by going after their actual endorsements. So there, there certainly was policy difference. And I do think that that drove some voters to the polls. And I think that the Dominion debacle really kind of inspired more action from gunners. It got VCDL much more involved in the race uh, they even were protesting uh, Dominion's offices. Did they really and, follow through with that? Yeah, yeah, that's what they told me that they that they actually had people go and protest at their offices, and then they they organized, you know, a, an effort to use the situation to get people to turn out to vote as sort of uh, to get almost out of spite <laughs> for what Dominion was doing, and I think that actually probably worked you did see uh there was a exit poll from cnn that had youngkin winning uh over two-thirds of the gun owner vote in the Hmm. election so there certainly was i think an impact and when you're talking about a race that's going to come down to less than two points it, it matters a lot it really does yeah and while youngkin himself didn't fill out the surveys. I think I saw somewhere that, and it's not an excuse for them, but they hadn't really filled out surveys for many issues. That's what I was reading into. And yeah, that's I think, what he said, but it's kind yeah, of, yeah. We it, it you know safe safe it's a answer. Pretty weak excuse. Yeah, so. I know it's it's a weak excuse, of course. But I think we'll have greater clarity. And I'm hoping to when I sit down with him in the near future because they wanted me to speak with him. I said, well, guys, you can win first. And then we can we can chat and see. Then I meant that in a joking manner, but I think now um, there's an opportunity to kind of ask him to clarify, like what he would do as governor. Would he repeal uh, some of the legislation that was uh, previously passed? Things of that sort. So I'm, I'm looking forward yeah. to asking him that. But I think even, that's the big question yeah. with what's going to happen here. I think the the obvious takeaway is that something like an assault weapons ban is off the table now. Oh, definitely. You, you, you're not going to get that through a Republican-controlled House, even though it controls only one vote, and you're not going to get it past Youngkin, presumably. Mm-mm. So I think that's in and of itself is a pretty big win for gun owners in Virginia because that was clearly the next goal after what they had passed in 2020 uh, in terms of gun control packages. They, they passed a universal background check bill on gun sale, you know, private gun sales. They passed um, the the local to revoke state preemption laws. Yeah, the local exemptions that allow 
places like Alexandria or Arlington or <laughs> Richmond to restrict where people can carry guns, at least to some degree. Uh, you know, you can't carry in parks or at, at permitted events. So I think the real question is now that that threat of banning guns, certain kinds of guns, at least is, is removed. What will they do beyond that? And that's where I think it's much less clear. And I, I, you have, there is some possibility that they could get stuff through because Democrats still control the Senate and that is, there's an election there until 2023. Mm-hmm. So you would think that there's not a lot of possibility for repealing some of the stuff that they passed in 2020, but that the Senate is controlled by relatively moderate Democrats. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who blocked the assault weapons ban in 2020. Chat Peterson being one of them. Right. And there is some speculation that maybe you'll even see somebody from the group of moderate Democratic senators flip so that Republicans get control of the, the Senate. I don't know if that's... I haven't heard chatter that. Do you know which which member they're possibly floating? No, uh, no. but I've seen people talk about the possibility that a co- there's a couple of these members that are that are more moderate and maybe they, maybe they would make a deal to flip in order to get control of the the body so Republicans can pass things they want to pass. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm pretty skeptical that that's going to happen, but it's not unheard of for people to switch parties like that. Yeah. The view I'm seeing situations. Yeah. The, the kind of the ideas being floated is that we'll have two, at least two Senator Joe Manchin's in the Virginia Senate, Joe Morrissey, and then Chad Patterson and possibly a third one. I forget the name. They, that name escapes me. Uh, But even though Youngkin hadn't filled up surveys, I think a lot of people were reassured. And I think people were just motivated that they just didn't want McAuliffe because they knew exactly where he stood for assault weapons bans, uh, universal background checks for everything, uh, just very extreme positions. He laid them out. So people were like, even if Youngkin didn't make his position super clear, we know that his ticket, his running mates, Winsome Sears, obviously, she checked out fine on both VCDL and NRA. Same with Jason Miara's, our incoming attorney general. So people were kind of reassured like, Okay, Sears, Sears actually was posing with an AR-15 on yes. her some of her campaign <laughs> memorabilia. So, uh, you know, it's, she's probably pretty solid on the issue. Yes. Yeah, so I think Virginia voters are going to be having a sigh of relief. I don't think they're going to see Youngkin do like what some Republicans do and adopt red flag laws. And I think we actually have some red flag laws, extreme protection orders. We may hopefully see some peeling back on that because I think that was, I don't remember the scope of it, but I know they passed some form of it in the legislature. Yeah. Um, so we may see some uh, maybe repeal of it or maybe some moder- moder- moderizing of it. Moderizing, what am I talking about? Moderization. <laughs> Moderization of it. <laughs> Is that the right word there? I don't know. Yeah, yeah you can see some changes to it. Yeah, moderating. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some minor stuff that can get through on a bipartisan basis, maybe changing some of the rules around the background checks for private sales. Do we see one handgun a month going away? Because that was just instituted again. Yeah, that's a really good question. That is kind of, that was really the last thing that Republicans repealed Mm -hmm. when they had control of, uh, the the entire government a uh, few you know I guess at this point it's almost what it was like eight mm-hmm. years ago right and so you could definitely see that being one of their key issues uh, as far as guns go in Virginia 
because it's kind of a, it's a pretty rare law actually outside of Virginia. You have it in like California. Mm -hmm. Most most states don't have a law like that. And it doesn't, it doesn't really do much in in practice because, especially because I believe there's a exception for people who have concealed carry permits. So those are the people who are more likely than not to actually be buying one more than one handgun. You and me. Right. And others, the 800,000 or so of us, or is it 500,000? I forget. The 800,000. Almost 800,000 now. Yeah. That have have a permit in in Virginia. But so I think practically it doesn't have a huge effect, but symbolically it was sort of a big deal because it represented like moving back towards the stricter gun laws Mm -hmm. of of the past in Virginia. And so it might be a, a symbolic, uh, effort to go the other way uh, now that the Republicans have taken back control of most of the government. And I don't know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because again, like I think in practice, it doesn't really do much because how many people are buying more than one handgun a month, but don't already have a concealed carry license, probably not a lot. So it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see what they do. It'll be interesting to see what they can get through in in a divided, you know, state legislature like that. But uh, again, the Senate is controlled by more moderate Democrats, so you might be able to get something. Of course, they all just voted for the reinstituting the one handgun a month uh-huh. rule uh, in 2020. So I don't know how likely they are to immediately repeal it now that Republicans have control again. Unless they represent districts that either Trump won or that Republicans had made some recent gains in. I have to check to see which seats those are. And that can be aside from the podcast, of course, for my political work more so. But we could see maybe some state senators from rural conservative areas maybe flipping a little bit maybe. more, too. Um, so that, that remains to be they'd seen. Have to, they'd have to go back on what they just voted on. So I know. Well, well maybe they maybe they'll moderate. Because in Virginia, they, they tend to moderate a little bit more than national Democrats, I think. So maybe they'll be like, the political climate is not really in our favor. Maybe we went too far. And we see gun, kind of what we've talked about on a national level, that people see that gun control is a, a losing issue going forward, especially with, and we'll talk about this in the Supreme Court case, but I think maybe some may see that it's, it's not a tenable position Going forward, Virginians are practical and they are not reckless and we have less crime compared to Maryland and D.C. So restricting firearms ownership further would probably implicate them more. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I think. Yeah, Maybe, like said, I just feel like they probably are going to want to avoid the issue altogether. So they probably yeah. will try to avoid having any votes on it that like maybe it gets to the House and then it just gets killed in a committee somewhere in the Senate and never gets up for a floor vote so that they don't have to take hard votes on, yeah. on an issue like that. That, mm-hmm. that's probably more likely, but you never know. It also, I wouldn't count out like deals that get struck on mm-hmm. different pieces of legislation. And so, you know, it includes something Republicans want and something the Democrats in the Senate want. And in, in that situation, mm-hmm. I could see some movement on guns. I mean, you saw that even with McAuliffe as governor, uh, because when they had to strike the deal back, right. Uh, for reciprocity. The, yeah, the reciprocity incident with when Herring revoked all the reciprocity deals and then the legislature, there was a huge backlash to that and they passed the, the law that has Virginia recognize every other state's concealed carry permit. So I, you could certainly see something like that. I, I don't know. 
something interesting I want to talk about briefly before we move to the SCOTUS case. While guns were not really front and center, I'm looking at one of the state seats, the House of Delegates seats, excuse me, that was flipped to a Republican in a black majority district. And this is a black Republican who won. And he is from Pocosin and Hampton. And uh, he's 31. He's pretty young. And he first ran for office in Hampton City Council to object to the city's proposed ban of open carrying of weapons. So we do see a little bit of gun advocacy kind of at the level with some of the new incoming members. I think his the results are still outstanding, but I think he's supposed to win. His name is AC Cardoza, but he was very open about being for the Second Amendment and kind of made that a big issue. And uh, even despite some of his views on that, because I think some people think like, oh my gosh, you know, that's too extreme for Hampton Roads, but it's not because it's a military place and people love guns down there. Uh, But it's interesting that a young black Republican who was pro second amendment won this. And I can send you this article uh, if you're Mm -hmm. curious and maybe you can interview him a bit more, but I was very fascinated when I read that the second amendment was one of his big issues. Certainly. And then you also, I mean, you had Winsome Sears mm-hmm. in the lieutenant governor race, and she's the first black woman to be uh, in any statewide position in mm-hmm. Virginia. And she's obviously uh, very pro-gun as well. She wasn't. She got the endorsements of the NRA and VCDL, and also again was the one who posed with an AR-15 on her campaign uh, sign. So certainly, I think that kind of represents a lot of what we've seen in the last couple of years, maybe decade or so, the movement towards more minorities, more women, yes, uh, more urban uh, people owning firearms, people in more urban areas, more suburban areas, uh, owning firearms and owning them for different reasons than just hunting, right? You also have a lot of people owning them for self-defense reasons, for uh, political reasons you know that they believe in sort of the political philosophy behind gun ownership uh and so i think you you definitely see that with those two candidates in virginia uh winning in this in this election i I think that's a good point yeah Mm -hmm. yeah especially i mean given how diverse our new incoming the top three positions are the first hispanic attorney general he's very much for the second amendment too same thing there yeah he was endorsed and uh uh It'll be interesting to see what he can do. I, like, I wonder if he'll be able to, for instance, regain reciprocity with Pennsylvania. Like, obviously, Virginia yes. recognizes Pennsylvania's permit, but Pennsylvania doesn't recognize Virginia's permit, which has a personal effect on me. Uh, I'm actually in Pennsylvania watching the, my mom's farm right now, and uh-huh. uh, my I have to get a uh, non-resident permit in order to be able to carry here because they don't recognize Virginia's permit because of some sort of outstanding um, rule that Pennsylvania has instituted. Uh, their, their attorney general, actually, uh, Shapiro, he did a similar thing to what Herring had done mm-hmm. back a few years back. So they've now made it much more difficult for there to be reciprocity between Pennsylvania and other states. And Virginia was one of the main uh, ones that got wiped away. And I believe it has something to do with the leniency. He was saying that it's too, our laws are too lenient. That's what Herring yeah, had said. Right. Yeah. This is, that's what they say about everything, but they've come up with like actual standards as to what that means. And it, Pennsylvania, Virginia doesn't allow the 24 hour 
query of their police database by other jurisdictions, I think is the issue there. So maybe that can be changed. Maybe the attorney general can work out a deal. Uh, this this new Republican attorney general can work out a deal to satisfy, you know, whatever rule Pennsylvania has put in the way. And maybe he can do that with a couple other states and, and get the, the permit recognized in more states. Mm-hmm. Certainly that would be something that he could do himself, perhaps, uh, in order to make a, a practical, real benefit for gun owners in Virginia. Right. And I don't think he's going to support red flag laws, especially really strict ones that Herring was starting to tout. I, I do see him pulling back on that. And then I think also with respect to the gun issue, I don't think he's going to be endorsing policies that let out people who have serious gun charges on their record back into the streets with that stemming from the Virginia patrol or parole board scandal. So I don't think we're going to see him be very lenient when it comes to people who have committed crimes involving firearms too. I think that's something, I don't know too much about uh, what attorney generals can do in, in the capacity of firearms, apart from like enforcing the laws, uh, maybe reassessing certain things. I think, like you said, reciprocity agreements, he can say, Hey, we're going to be having more recognition between the States, different States. If we don't already have recognition with different States, and, and permit exchanges. So, but yeah, I think um, he's not going to support policies that let out people who have committed serious gun crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move over to Supreme court because yes, we will keep tabs, both you and I in our different capacities. And, and we'll talk more about this on the triggered podcast with Vespa and storm Paglia sometime before Thanksgiving to kind of revisit from that really fun episode we did, I think pre COVID. Um, but, but all of us putting our heads together about what we could look to, uh, in terms of this new makeup in, in Richmond. But SCOTUS, uh, oral arguments were just heard for this New York case. And you've been following it. And it involves whether or not May issue laws will stand legally speaking going forward. I don't know if the Supreme Court will be influenced by trends, practically speaking, common sense or evidence that these laws are archaic, also stemming from maybe some past court cases. And could you provide us some highlights of what went down in oral arguments yesterday on November 3rd? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the main question here is whether or not these may issue laws like New York has, where essentially government officials have complete discretion over who can and can't get a permit, regardless of whether or not they pass a background check or obtain the training that is required under the law. They can still be denied by, in this case, in New York, it's county judges. But, you know, it, depending on what state you're in, it could be, a, you know, the sheriff or or some other government official that makes that decision. But I think that yesterday the oral arguments went really well for plaintiffs. Now, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that oral arguments don't necessarily tell you exactly where uh Supreme Court justice is going to come down on an issue. Uh, oftentimes, they'll ask questions to try and inform whatever their opinion is that they're formulating in their mind, but they don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily a one to one indicator of exactly how they're going to rule. But you can get some sense from it and you can take some observations, I think, that, that are important. And it certainly 
most of the justices seemed very skeptical of the this discretionary rule that they have, this idea that a government official can determine pretty much just based off of their own opinion whether or not somebody can exercise a protected right like the Second Amendment uh, or the rights under the Second Amendment. In this case, carrying a gun outside of the home. Because the issue here is not, yes, it's about the concealed carry law, but it's kind of deeper than that because New York doesn't allow open carry at all. So the only way to carry a gun on your person in New York is by getting a concealed carry permit. So the question is specifically about the concealed carry law, but it's kind of broader than that because it's it's really about carrying guns at all because that's the only way you can do it in New York. So a lot of them were very skeptical of, the, of a lot of what New York was saying as far as how they justify this law, whether or not it matches with the history of gun regulations in the United States, especially those closer to the founding era. And it certainly seemed like most of them were open to the idea that at the very least shall issue should be what's required. They, they didn't necessarily talk a lot about getting rid of permitting requirements altogether, right? Like something like constitutional carry, what, what activists call constitutional carry, you know, permitless carry, which has become a popular policy in a lot of states. But they weren't going to that level. They were more trying to discern why New York, one, why New York feels it needs to go beyond shall issue, where shall issue is as long as you pass the background check and you get the training that's required, they, they have to give you a permit. They can't arbitrarily say at that point that you don't have a good reason to have one and deny it, right? That's the difference between the two policies. And it seemed like from the plaintiffs to the justices, they were leaning much more towards, well, shall issue should be the minimum when it comes to issuing, you know, when it comes to regulating gun carry, that you can't go stricter than that. And so that that seemed to be the big takeaway for me uh, watching the whole thing. Obviously, you had the liberal justices, Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan, were more inclined to believe that there is a historical justification for may issue for these uh, discretionary laws and that they are necessary to protect public safety because basically because they don't (laughs) their argument kind of boiled down to more guns is going to create more problems in especially in denser areas that was kind of the throughput of the liberal justices on on the during the oral arguments whereas the conservative justices you know kavanaugh gorsuch even roberts uh thomas alito they were much more concerned with the idea that the law allows government officials to sort of arbitrarily decide who actually gets to exercise this constitutionally protected right so that that was really more of what it boiled down to. And when do you think could be the earliest? And we don't know when they're going to hand on decisions. They have a whole session to do that. But do you think a decision uh, could be handed down anytime soon? I mean, I doubt probably in the next month or two, but maybe towards the spring, early summer. Yeah, early summer is probably a good 
guess as far as when the ruling will come out, maybe June of next year. It depends on what the court decides to do with the case. If they're going to issue a, you know, a full throated actual ruling on the merits, which is what everybody on the gun rights side wants, or if they're going to punt to just re- remand the case for further hearings at the lower court or, or something like that. That was something that was suggested a number of times by the liberal justices. They kind of insinuated that they, the record wasn't good enough that they wanted to see what the different statistics were and like how, how many permits New York has actually issued and all this stuff. And that, so they were, they kept making allusions to this should be sent back down to be relitigated by the lower courts and go through a full trial. And uh, whereas the, that's not what the plaintiffs want. They want a ruling on the merits as soon as possible. And that's probably what will happen to be honest. Uh, I don't think the court took a case like this with the intention of just not making a ruling or not overturning the lower court's ruling. And in this case, the lower court upheld New York's law. So that implies that they're going to overturn New York's law. And I think the question that remains is on what basis and will they decide a standard for all gun cases moving forward? Because that was another big thing that Gorsuch that uh, was brought up a couple of times during oral arguments is Gorsuch kept asking people and Kavanaugh as well, what standard they thought the court should decide gun cases over in the future and what they should put down for the lower courts to, to use. Gorsuch asked that a number of times of both the defense and the plaintiffs. And it seemed like but, well, first of all, both the defense and the plaintiffs both said that text history tradition is the right standard to use, which is something that basically Kavanaugh kind of coined in terms of uh, trying to interpret Heller for you know future gun cases. Uh, in, in a case called Heller 2, Kavanaugh was the dissenter, and he laid out this standard that he said uh, gun cases should be decided by, which is using an analysis of the text and then a review of the historical laws that existed, uh, especially earlier in the country's history near to the founding. So it's interesting to see both the plaintiffs and defense in agreement on that. Now, obviously they disagree about whether or not the historical record supports New York's law, but they seem to come down on the same side there. And then, Anything that couldn't be decided by looking at the, his, the history, the plaintiff said should be decided by uh, strict scrutiny, which is a much higher standard of review where the law has to be narrowly tailored and has to uh, be responsive to a uh, an actual, what is it, what do they call it, um, a comprehensive government interest, so it's like a very important government interest has to be involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the defense said that anything that can't be decided historically or looking at the tax should revert to intermediate scrutiny, which is a lower level of, of scrutiny that 
just requires the the government be acting in uh, some substantial interest and that the law has to be related to that instead of being narrowly tailored. So there's, there are very different levels that obviously super technical to, <laughs> to get into, but certainly I think the practical outcome is uh, one, a text history tradition standard. Most people view that as a standard that would strike down a lot more laws because a lot of gun laws that are, that we debate today are relatively modern laws, things like mm-hmm. assault weapons bans or these may issue gun carry laws are really only a hundred years old or the Sullivan's bands only maybe 50 years old uh, at the oldest. So they didn't exist in the historical record. Obviously they're, they're modern creations. Uh, even, I mean, the first federal gun law didn't get passed until the 1930s. So a lot of that stuff in theory would be in jeopardy. If you, if you looked at it from a text history tradition standard, and same thing when you're, you're comparing strict scrutiny and intermediate scrutiny. Intermediate scrutiny is what a lot of lower courts have been using up to this point to uphold gun laws. Uh, just saying that gun, you know, public safety is a compelling, you know, is, is a substantial government interest. And basically every gun law has, you know, is at least part to some degree tailored to or not, not tailored, but it is, is forwarding that interest. So it survives intermediate scrutiny. And whereas strict scrutiny is much harder to survive and is often used in, in first amendment cases. And so you see a lot of uh, government action that could impact the first amendment in any way gets struck down. And so if you apply that to gun laws as well, you, you'd probably see a lot of those, a lot of modern laws get struck down, maybe even some older laws, which is why when you read through Heller, it's kind of a compromise ruling. It doesn't use strict scrutiny, and it explicitly says that some of our gun laws are constitutional because they've been around for a long time, which is why they're why they're arguing over this standard that's different from how they decide a lot of other kinds of constitutional cases. That's a good overview. And I even learned a lot from that because you follow that a little more closely than I do. And and that's good because we need someone who can focus their efforts on that. And then I could bring you on to, to clarify and explain what that all means. But briefly before we finish today, we could talk about actually some articles that have been posted in response and we don't have to dwell on it so much, but we had talked before recording about how an opinion editorial individual, the guy who writes the plumb line at the Washington Post said the Supreme Court is poised to make us all live under Texas's gun laws. And we had both chuckled (laughs) over the fact that he was very worried about the idea of people's views of gun culture not being respected in both ways, especially the way of the absence of guns. And it was interesting. He said he never saw guns. And if any of their parents, if any of his parents his friends had it or friends' parents had it. He never knew it. And then he associated hunting with the Second Amendment, which is a common misnomer that anti-gun activists always do and use to kind of dilute the Second Amendment and the rights inherent to us in the Constitution regarding it. But we had chatted about this. And why do you think he is trying to make the case about the potential revocation of May issue 
or maybe a whittling down of it to making everything shall issue when it comes to concealed carry outside the home. Why is he trying to say that Texas is so bad? Like, is Texas as bad as he says it is? Are we going to look like the Wild West? What was it? Wild West pimp style, I think, was what everyone was saying <laughs> in relation to constitutional carry in Texas. But yes, is his characterization of what potentially the landscape could be as scary as he's making it out to be? Because we had discussed before going live that only eight states have May issue. I think most have shall issue in some form. Uh, so why is he painting such a scary picture? Yeah, that piece was interesting, actually. I mean, I think he's he's using Texas as like shorthand for very pro-gun, which is kind of which is almost a little bit funny. I mean, they certainly have have actually loosened their gun laws quite a lot in the last several years, but they, they weren't always uh one of the places that had the what gun rights act, activists would view as as the best gun laws. Uh not until very recently, in fact. I mean, they just passed they used to ban all all sorts of of gun carry they weren't one of the first ones to do a shall issue uh they didn't have open carry for a long time and now they this year they've moved to permitless carry Mm -hmm. but but for a long time texas actually had much stricter gun laws than places like pennsylvania or uh most of the midwest right and most of the south so uh, but he's just using it as shorthand, like people use Chicago as shorthand for places that have gun laws that are very strict or that have a lot of gun violence. It's like Chicago is not actually the most violent city in the United States uh, per capita. I mean, it's still very violent, but but you get the point. Like People use it as shorthand. So that's what he's doing here. And it's interesting. He, you read through his piece and he's talking about gun culture, but he's 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 talking about how people grow up around guns and it becomes part of their culture and their their lives and and he's saying that that's fine but also people grow up where there aren't guns people grow up without guns and that's part of their culture and their lives i think the major problem with what he's arguing though is and he's saying that the supreme court is about to force everyone into a culture that has guns and I think he's missing just <laughs> a lot in this piece. One, I think I start out with the fact that, so he, he, he and I seem to be from the same area. He went to Swarthmore College, which is in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. And he, he went to University of Pennsylvania, which is in Philadelphia. And I grew up in Chester County, Pennsylvania, and my dad's side of the family lives in Delaware County. And so I get I get his point that he's that you that he grew up with that. Like I grew up the same way. There weren't a lot of guns around. We didn't go hunting. Guns weren't a big part of my upbringing uh, until after college was when I actually got into firearms. So I under, I can understand to some degree how how what he's talking about in, in terms of this and no gun culture or like the absence of guns as part of your culture. Now, of course, I, I think that that's a pretty privileged, like uh white way of growing up. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm a white guy, obviously, but like yeah. there's only certain areas of the country where that could possibly be true, where, where you don't grow up with guns either as a positive or negative thing. Cause if you go, we go into the cities, they certainly, have an experience of growing up with guns. It's not always a positive one, obviously, but guns are around. 
And then if you go further out from the city into the country areas, guns are around there too a lot in most every state. There's only a sliver of the country that falls between those two areas that where guns might not be as prevalent either through gun violence or gun ownership. And even then it's still kind of like, I still don't really buy his whole thing. Like, yeah, you're, you're growing up. You might not have been told that there were guns around or told that your friend's parents owned guns. It doesn't mean they didn't though. <laughs> that's, right. that's one of the big things. And, and like, even me, and I grew up in Chester County, uh, Downingtown, Westchester area, which is very, you know, very affluent. Uh, there's not as much gun ownership probably as, uh, you know, Lancaster County or, or uh, Bucks County or, or, or something like that. But it also, it was, and, and, uh, you know, guns weren't a big part of my upbringing, upbringing, but it doesn't mean that gu- guns weren't around. I mean, we knew people who had guns. My mom had a gun. We just never used it <laughs> for anything. It was like a 22 uh, rifle that uh, I don't know why she had it, honestly, because we never used it for anything. And I didn't grow up shooting it or anything like that. But I knew I, my friend's father went hunting and he went hunting. Uh, I didn't, I didn't go hunting and my friends didn't go hunting very often or whatever. And we, so we didn't go target shooting either. So I get the perspective of not growing up with guns, but, the, but this assumption that means that there weren't, that nobody there had guns is ridiculous. And then comically to me, and, and actually it wasn't your upgrading. It was, was similar to that too, right? You didn't grow up with guns. Yeah. I didn't necessarily have guns. I'm from California, Southern California, child of immigrants. And you would think that kind of background would make me repelled by guns, but I never really was anti-gun oddly enough. I'd heard about firearms. My dad had to do like AK 47 training in the Soviet union for some physical education requirement in school. And he did a little bit of hunting. He helped my uncle field dress a moose. He was really good with knives. So my parents were never opposed to guns because my dad always had told me growing up that uh, the reason why we had dictators and others take over our ancestral homeland is because they first stripped people of firearms. So I kind of knew it, but we just didn't feel the need to have guns in Orange County, California, very affluent, very safe. But I knew that people had guns. It was pretty ubiquitous. It wasn't really like propped publicly, but I remember having friends. I have no doubt they had huge vaults with firearms. I had some, I think my first time shooting was in California in the mountains of San Bernardino in public land. We were safe. We weren't doing anything reckless. And I was able to shoot even for the first time with a, uh, I think an antique rifle and then handguns about 11, 12, some odd years ago, even in California. So the options were there, but I never really went to the range, but you can live in suburbia. You don't necessarily have to have guns yourself nor your family, but you could still be aware that they exist. We had gun ranges. We had John Wayne was from, he he lived in Newport beach and um, actually where I grew up in where I lived in high school and a little bit in college used to be an old hunt club for Hollywood. So people in it's a community called Cota de Casa, which unfortunately gave rise to the housewives franchise (laughs) that everyone watches. But, um, over there, I knew people had guns because they were very affluent. It was kind of a rural inland enclave and people lived behind the gates. They weren't afraid of crime or or people of, of any sort, but I had no doubt that some of my neighbors and some of the more affluent people who lived there in their own little gated places within the gated community, they definitely had guns because of just the the, the area. So in California, the wild West, like a 
of course, before they started to implement all this gun control stuff, you can even find guns in San Francisco and Silicon Valley with our mutual friend, Chris Chang. So it's anywhere. I I think his main problem seems to be with the visibility of guns, <laughs> right? He he seemed to assume that out of sight, out of mind was kind of is kind of his perspective on guns, and so he, he which is, um, I mean, it's interesting because he's concerned here about concealed carry, which which I think that's the exact reason why concealed carry is preferred today to open carry because right. it used to be the opposite, you know, centuries ago in this country, you used to be that concealed carry was considered, you know, a devious thing. You're hiding your gun and open carry was considered to be the right way to do it. The, the virtuous thing, because you're, you're showing people that you're armed now because of this kind of attitude that this guy has. And I think it's probably a bit wider spread than, than maybe we imagine, but that's probably the main reason why, why society seems to prefer concealed carry today. Because if I don't see someone carrying a gun, then I just assume they aren't and it makes <laughs> me feel safe. Right. I mean, it's kind of foolish, but that's, that's, that seems to be this guy's exact. So he didn't know if his, uh, if his friend's parents had guns, he just assumed they didn't because they didn't show them to him, which is fine. I guess. They don't have a right to show him. <laughs> the guns. Right. I mean, he's, his whole thing seems to boil down to him being uncomfortable knowing people have Ugh. guns rather than, the reality that people don't have guns because I can tell you growing up in, uh, especially being back here now in Chester, I'm in Chester County right now. Uh, people have guns here. It's not, it's not something that people don't have. And the ironic, the ironic thing about all this is he's complaining about the idea that the Supreme court might strike down may issue laws uh, and go to shall issue laws and which is exactly what Pennsylvania has had for mm-hmm. decades. He grew up under shall issue laws and he lives in DC now where they have shall issue mm-hmm. laws. So it's bizarre because he's worried about the Supreme Court striking down this law that only exists in eight states and that he, he is not living in those states. He's living where they have shall issue. So uh, he doesn't seem to make this connection or understand it, but the, the Supreme Court isn't bringing Texas's gun laws because they're. It's unlikely that they're going to go to permitless carry as the standard. Highly doubtful. I'll, I'll say yeah. That much. They'll probably just go to shall issue. Mm-hmm. And so, really, what the Supreme Court is doing is they're exporting DC's gun laws to New York and California places like that. Not not Texas's because Texas has permitless carry now, and DC has shall issue. So. He's just kind of ignorant about the situation generally of what the laws are. And he's just kind of concerned. He's concerned about uh, Texas's gun culture becoming popular in in D.C. The weird thing about his position, though, uh, beyond that, is that the Supreme Court isn't going to certainly isn't going to force anyone to own a gun or force them to carry a gun. What they're going to do is allow people to to do that without it being subjected to uh, government officials discretion on whether mm-hmm. they think the person has a good reason or not to have a gun or have a gun carry permit so nobody is trying it wouldn't it wouldn't create new new gun owners or new it wouldn't create the, it wouldn't force people to be become ingrained in gun culture all it would do is allow the people who already want to do that 
to do so. So that that's the real, I think, failure of his argument is not is not that uh, anyone is saying you can't live with like-minded people who don't want to own guns. Nobody is telling you you have to own guns or you have to carry a gun. What he's saying, though, is that we should continue to force people not to carry guns or own guns. That's what he's. That's what he wants. He wants to preserve this fantasy that he doesn't live near gun owners. Uh huh. But he does, <laughs> he does. especially and in DC. <laughs> he wants to enforce that, though. He wants to say, "Oh, DC or or the collar counties of Pennsylvania are not. Uh, you know, Philadelphia collar counties aren't gun owning areas, and I'm going to. F- you know, I want the." the laws to force things to be that way. And it's this, that's, what's ridiculous about his argument. He, he's, he's saying that people who want to be able to carry should be forced not to not the other way around. Nobody hmm. is arguing that he should be forced to own a gun or carry a gun or his neighbors. If he wants to live in an area where people don't want, would don't want to own guns, he's free to do that. And DC, like uh, if he lives, lives in DC now, he probably does live in an area where a lot of people don't, he probably lives in a very affluent part of DC. I would imagine. Not surprising. If if he's not experiencing guns there because there's a lot of gun violence in DC. Yes. A lot of, a lot of people have guns, whether or not the laws tell them they can. And so, you know, that that's the bottom line for me about his piece is like what he wants is to force people not to own or carry guns. He's nobody is asking anyone to force him or anyone else who doesn't want to carry to do so. That's right. And he's projecting his fears onto the rest of us. And I think culturally and legislatively, I I'm, want to be optimistic. And I think trends point to this and you've excellently documented this at the reload that more and more people, especially groups and demographics that are not traditionally viewed as gun toting are starting to shed those misconceptions. A lot more women, minorities, as you talked about, especially black Americans, that I think they're some of the biggest gains we've had in gun ownership. And so they're gonna look at to these kind of pasty guys in DC genuflecting and being like, uh-uh, dude, like, no, we you're not gonna tell us we can't get a permit or we can't own guns. Like we're the arbiters of our decision and our personal safety. So I think this guy's view is going to clash with what we're seeing in trends. I'm not sure electorally speaking, how it'll, it'll change. And and I know you've been documenting like whether or not uh, the gun issue could be a viable issue from a national platform or for state campaigns going forward. But in terms of um, trends, I just don't see how this view will be a widely accepted view going forward, just because now we even see Democrats buying guns more commonly as well to liberals as well. And in their different groups of, like I said, untraditional kind of gun toting demographics now that are partaking in the firearms industry directly and directly purchases, training, competing media, things of that sort. So I don't think this is going to be a widely accepted view and it's going to clash with a lot of people I think who are just awakening to second amendment advocacy or gun ownership. Yeah, sure. I think that's fair, a fair point of view. Uh, I just think that this idea that people shouldn't be allowed to carry a gun 
or own a gun unless it makes this guy feel comfortable mm-hmm. or because it doesn't make this guy feel comfortable huh. is is ridiculous. I mean, it's like saying that, you know, people shouldn't be allowed to wear MAGA hats in DC because that would make him uncomfortable. You know what I mean? It's like, this is, you can apply this to free speech issues just the same. Like a lot of people in DC don't, wouldn't want to wear a MAGA hat and shouldn't be forced to. Right. But saying that you can't wear one, is a bit ridiculous, right? It certainly would violate our understanding of First Amendment protections in this country. Uh, certainly, it's not the same exact issue, but uh, to me, it wouldn't make this this type of argument that he's putting forward <clears throat> doesn't work uh, with any other constitutional amendment, uh, with any constitutionally protected right. It only works if you think that people are not entitled to own guns for self-defense or carry them in public. If you don't think that's a right, then sure. It, it shouldn't, then you could restrict it or eliminate it altogether. But it, I think that would go directly against the text of the second amendment, regardless of the other uh, parts of the analysis, like historical record that we talked about. Mm-hmm. So I just think in in the end he he's making the, this argument that he wants to force his his beliefs onto other people rather than the other way around. And that that's the real crux of the issue for me is like he's comfortable in places where people don't visibly own guns and he wants to force everyone around him not to visibly own guns. Of course and I think his concerns are just totally overblown anyway cuz like I mean, it's concealed carry. You're not going to see the guns. Right. The intention is to conceal it. If that's your, if your problem is purely with the visible existence of a gun near you, the, the knowledge of its presence, then you probably aren't going to run into any issues. I mean, he's been living in DC presumably since uh, what they, that was what 2013, I think was when their, the concealed, when their ban on gun carry was struck down. And it's been several years that they've been operating under a shall issue regime in DC itself. So uh, unless he's been freaked out by that the whole time, which it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like he's aware that that's already the law where he lives. So I don't think it's actually going to have any impact on him whatsoever in reality, but he, he, he has this fantasy world that he's created where nobody around him owns or carries guns, even when he lived in Pennsylvania, which is pretty laughable, frankly. Uh, but I, I don't, it just doesn't seem like his, we should go out of the way to force other people to live up to his fantasy of what his surroundings are actually like. Well said. Yeah. I think he's, like I said, in the minority opinion going forward and we'll have plenty of time to poke fun at arguments like that because it's, it's fodder at least and we can deconstruct it, but yeah, it's, it's not a serious opinion because everyone is surrounded by guns indirectly, directly, whether they partake in gun culture positively, or if they're living in a high crime area, 
or they're living near a highly protected precinct with police on every corner or something of that nature. You know, police are everywhere. So you're, you're protected by someone with a gun, someone in your family who may have a gun, or you may unfortunately live in a high crime area. So you're affected either way. <laughs> it's not like no guns exist in America. But I want to ask you, um, as we conclude, what other stories should the listeners here at the podcast be aware of that you guys are focusing on at the reload? Yeah, well, we've had a lot of developments with the NRA as of late. There was actually uh, another big story that came out of there. Obviously, they've been dealing with internal turmoil for a while now over allegations of corruption and misspent funds to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars over many decades. And they've been dealing with New York attorney general's suit over those exact same allegations, trying to dissolve them altogether, shut them down. And now uh, Russian hacking syndicate has apparently breached the NRA's servers and is leaking documents from inside. And we just broke news of the second batch that was released this week. And it's got a lot of internal documents, a lot of important documents, things like employment contracts, receipts, insurance policies, uh, including their 2021 DNO insurance policy that protects their board members and officers, you know, executives. That was the source of some controversy that led to a number of resignations when that 2020 policy was canceled. And now they, there has been a lot of secrecy around the new policy that was leaked as part, or at least purportedly a copy of that was leaked as part of this. I'm still working on verifying the authenticity of a lot of these documents, but from what NRA insiders have told me, they appear to be authentic. It's not clear if the NRA has contained this breach yet. The hackers, which obviously they're hackers and they're under sanction from the U.S. government, so they're not the most trustworthy people in the world, but they claim that the hack is ongoing We'll see if anything more comes out, and I think we'll have more details on exactly what's included in there uh, in the coming days and weeks as well over on the reload. And I ju we just finished writing up their financials, which also aren't doing that well. I mean, they've managed to come back into the black. They're no longer spending more than they bring in, but that was due to very large cuts that they made in staffing and across the board for most of their programs. So the NRA is definitely one of our focuses at the reload, all the good and bad stories coming out about them. We're just trying to keep membership informed and the general public informed about what's really happening over there. Cause it's important. They're still the biggest and most powerful gun organization in the country. Yeah, you have been focusing a lot on that. And I caught a little bit of it while I was traveling this week. And you also host the Weekly Reload podcast and you have a great free newsletter and also paid subscription services as well for people to get these really cool exclusive options. I haven't yet gotten a premium uh, deal yet, but I do at oh, least at minimum. I know, I know. I will at some point, I promise. But at least I support you through the free newsletter. I love getting yes. that every week and I listen to your podcast as well. You'll have to have me on sometime. I would love to... Yeah. to come and chat about like this stuff and, and even beyond more so. So anytime you need, like yeah, I said, I anytime you need us, we can do that and, and cross pollinate, but we're no, having, I, I uh, we're having Tim Mack, the NPR reporter who just wrote uh, a book about, uh, yes. about the NRA. 
he's on this week. So interesting. Into that. We just had a, uh, movie armor on to talk about the Alec Baldwin shooting, which is another right. big story. Yeah. That, that you've been covering. Out. You went on entertainment yeah. tonight to discuss That's that. Right. I remember. And yeah. I'll link to that in the show notes so people can catch your interview. That was really good. Thanks. Yeah, no, that was, and this guy, uh, Steve Wolf, he was on a lot of the other networks, TMZ and Fox news and CNN to talk about the issue. So I figured we should both get together and talk about it a little more in depth so we could really get into the meat of what went wrong that, allowed something like that to occur in the first place on a movie set, given all the safeguards that are supposed to be in place. So that's a good list. And that's, that's become a really popular uh, episode. I think it's our most popular episode yet. Excellent. So, yeah, and I'll encourage people, people, people can uh, connect with the reload. Yes. I'll encourage them to follow on Twitter, on YouTube. I'll make sure they follow you. You finally got 40,000 followers on Twitter long yes, overdue. Uh, my <laughs> life is perfect now. That's, that's the bar. I'm trying to get back to 50, (laughs) but it's hard. All your, all your, um, all your worries go away at that point. Yes. You're, you're you're saved for life. Yeah. How vain we are to judge ourselves by the number of our Twitter followers. That's how it works. Uh, Once you get to a certain number on Twitter, it's, it's all up. It's all down. You should have a lot more. I will say this personally speaking, you need to have more. Yeah, we both do because like we do, we do. And I'm not trying to toot our own horns here, but we do work or we cover things that people are not talking about greatly. So you definitely deserve like twofold, threefold, a lot more. So hopefully people will give notice to your social media following and your reporting. And we're going to link to everything. We always appreciate you coming on. And I hope I get to see you sometime soon. You're just down the road for me, not too far. So we'll have yeah. to do something soon. I know. Cause I was busy traveling. You're busy, but I'm hoping we can do the triggered podcast very soon with, with storm and, and Vespa. So I think that should be fun and something for us to look forward to, but Steven, always good to have you on the podcast. Keep up the great work with your reporting. You're on the cutting edge and all these different things. And I really appreciate you coming on to share with us and my listeners, what happened in Virginia. And then also with what's playing out in SCOTUS potentially. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes, and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds, all of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. I get a lot of requests and my schedule is also quite busy. So you'll see guests come from me. And I'm, but like I said, I'm always open to different guests coming on the show. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for tomorrow's episode.